This morning we're going to be in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I've been in a number of Easter services um, as a child living overseas and in churches in the U.S. And, and we know the narrative really well. We know the narrative, we know the story uh, tremendously well. This, this amazing narrative account of God sending his perfect son, right? And he, he comes to earth, he has this amazing ministry where he's telling people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, turn, surrender, and follow me. And, and, and he's doing that, and then at the end of this, he surrenders his life. He dies at the hands of his creation. He surrenders his life. He's lifted up on the cross. He's nailed to the cross. He dies. He goes into the tomb and then praise God. Three days later, he comes out exalted forevermore. Exalted forevermore. But somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, our, our culture has, has, has taken this and co-opted it to be a story of, of tremendous victory over difficulty, a story to excite us, a story to get us behind and, and, and to, to give us great morals and to influence on this. But all of these adaptations of the narrative contained in Scripture take us away from Jesus. All of these adaptations that our culture would have us go on and believe in and buy into, they take us away from the Jesus of Scripture. You see, Jesus wasn't just this guy who had this itinerant ministry and he's wandering around and he's teaching and he's gathering this, this ragtag group of men and then lo and behold, something bad happens to him. Like he fell into this horrible situation and he's like, Oy vey, I didn't know this was going to happen to me. The Jesus we see in Colossians is the Jesus who died on the cross. Let me read it for us and ask God to center our hearts on his text. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, and he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Check this. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. We're going to take this sermon and we're going to split it in half. We're going to spend the first half of our time in 15 through 17. And then we're going to worship together. And then we're going to pick up 18 through 20. So let us look first to, to 15 through 20. Paul writes in speaking of Jesus, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, John, writing in his gospel account, said this of God in John 1.18. He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, and who is at the Father's side, he has made known to us. Jesus makes God known. Jesus is God in flesh. The text tells us here is he is the image. He is the exact imprint. He is true God of true God. Very God of very God. Jesus is God. He manifests, shows us what God is like. This is what Jesus is doing. 
Jesus is God in the flesh showing us what God is like. And look what he says here. He is the firstborn of all creation. And this isn't talking in terms of, of Jesus being born because we recognize that Jesus was eternally with the Father. He has always been, just as God has always been. What this is talking about is in terms of rank and authority and place. And so you recognize in many households, and, and especially in the Old Testament, but in these households, the firstborn had, had certain things that were by virtue of his birth order were his. And this is what Paul is telling us, that everything belongs to Jesus, that everything is his, that he's over absolutely everything, that there is nothing above Jesus, that Jesus is above all. He says he is the firstborn of all creation. So every created thing that you go out and you can look at, you look at the mountains, you look at the sea, you look at the sunset, you look at the rainbows, you look at your wife, she looks at you and says, of course he's over you. But then you look back at her and you say, I don't know, she's so beautiful. You look at your children, recognize Jesus is over all of it. He's over all of it. He's the firstborn of all creation. He shows us what God is like. He reveals to humanity, God, we can't see God, but we can see Jesus. That's what Paul is writing to them. And Jesus... In his flesh, he is showing everything about God. He's revealing to humanity all things about God. And he has this amazing thing to say about Jesus next. This Jesus who would be nailed on a cross by his creation. This Jesus who is very God of very God. This Jesus who shows us all things about God. Paul has this amazing thing to say about him. Look here in verse 16. Paul says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. By Jesus, all things are created. Paul gives us this tremendous picture. It's almost like he's saying, look, look, I want you to understand when I say all things, I really mean all things. And so all things that were created were created by Jesus. He says, he says the heavens and the earth, so everything above you, everything below you. And then he goes on, he says, look, I want you to get this. I don't think you're getting this. And he says, all those things visible and all those things invisible. And so everything you see, everything you behold, all these things come from God. All these things come from God. And verse 16 tells us, verse 16 says, for by him all things were created. God spoke in Genesis and Jesus, this picture shows us, Jesus went out and he created The creative endeavor of the Father is executed by the Son, is brought to bear by the Son. This is what is told us here. And and, and there's this particular problem in Colossae, the city where Paul is writing to. You see, they're so preoccupied with trying to to find all the different strata of, of what they presume to be higher deities. And so within this, they, they had started to assign levels and, and different, different hierarchies among angelic beings. And, and someone say, well, you need this person in your life and you need this being in your life. And so Paul, he, he blows it. He blows it all apart for them. He says, this is absolutely so incredibly illegitimate. This is absolutely so ridiculously worthless. You see this Jesus who created the heavens and the earth. This Jesus, he created the visible, those things you see. But this Jesus, he created, he is exalted. He is over all those things that you cannot see. This is this Jesus. And so Paul takes these descriptions that the Colossians would would commonly use. They would talk about thrones. They would talk about dominions. They would talk about power and authority. And they would would presume these things going on all around them. 
and they would live their lives leaning towards them, okay? Focusing their energy on these things. And this is what Paul says to them. These things that you give so much attention and, and, and focus on in your life, these things are empty. And Jesus is over them. These things, Jesus is over them. Paul is showing the inherent worth of Jesus being over all things. It's as if the, the folks in Colossians were on the antique road show. And you know, I know you've probably seen this show. Somebody comes in and they have something they think is incredibly valuable. And so somebody comes in and they'd be like, this is a Mott apple juice bottle drank out of by George Washington. I know you don't believe me, but my aunt told me so, so it must be true. I know her to be a lady of great truth and honor. And so they're very kind, and they say, how much do you think this is worth? And they say, it's incalculable. It's, it's, it's inestimable. We have this sitting with, with a little bit of backwash that George Washington himself left in there in a cabinet. Like, we don't even turn the lights on because we don't want the sticker to degrade. And the person is always so kind, and they say, well, friend, I hate to tell you this. Plastic wasn't around back then. Mott's wasn't in business back then. And I have it on good authority. George Washington did not like apple juice. <laughs> and they say, are you kidding me? My whole life is, is, is centered on providing for this thing, caring for this thing, living for this thing. Our whole house and structure is centered around making this thing, recognizing it as having tremendous worth. Tremendous worth. I say, I'm sorry, but it's inherently worthless. And then, of course, we find people that go in, and they'll say, I don't know if this thing's worth anything. My grandfather was fighting in World War II, and he brought back this collection of stamps. And so we've just had them in this, in this envelope, in a shoe box, at the back of a closet. We've moved them five or six times. And they'll say, okay, well, let me take a look at it. I'm always interested in stamps. Friends, anybody that tells you they're always interested in stamps, watch this person. Watch this person. He says, but I'm always interested in stamps. So they pull them out and they begin to say, where did you have these? And they're like, in an envelope, in a shoebox at the back of the closet. They're like, well, that's why they're in such great condition because light never got to them. They say, oh, very cool. Well, what are, you know, they always want to know, what's it worth? Can I sell the house? Can I quit my job? And the person says, what do you think they're worth? And the guy's like, I spent $50 in gas, called in sick for work. That's not good. I don't know, a couple thousand dollars, a couple thousand dollars. And he says, friend, let me tell you, this thing that you presumed to be almost worthless, you kept out of a deep sense of, of, of associated value because your family had kept it, because you have fond feelings for your grandfather. Can I tell you that this treasure is priceless? Can I tell you that this treasure has incredible value? Can I tell you that I can't even give you a price on this and we're gonna have to surround you with armed guards because it is so incredibly valuable. This is what Paul is saying of Jesus. He says it doesn't matter how much worth you presume him to have. Jesus is inestimably valuable. Jesus is incalculably valuable. Jesus is over all things. No matter whether you consider your husband, your wife, your spouse, your children, your house, or your car to be the thing of most value for you. This is what you set most value. Paul would come to you. He would have me come to you and say, Jesus is over all of it. That all of these things that we assign value to and seek to assign more value to them, to Jesus, Paul would say, this is just like a moss bottle full of backwash in comparison 
to King Jesus. Paul says he created all things, those things on heaven and earth, both visible and invisible. It's amazing. And look what he goes on to say here. All things were created through him and for him. We get this amazing, blessed picture of creation. When 16 opens, it says it's created by Jesus. When 16 closes, it says it's created through Jesus and for Jesus. Everything ever created at any time is created by Jesus, by the agency of Jesus, and it is meant to return glory and honor to Jesus. You are included. The heavens and the earth declare the praise and majesty of our God and his people resound with praise. We are created to be beacons of giving back glory and honor to God. We're created, we're created for him. Do you see that picture? All things created, you and I, we were created by God to glorify King Jesus. Amen? We are created by God to glorify King Jesus. Everybody say, I am created to glorify him. We're created to return glory and honor to Jesus. This is this amazing picture. This is how in, incredibly valuable and precious Jesus is. He created everything. It's created by him. It's created through him. And it is meant to reflect and return glory to him. Praise God. Now look at what he goes on to say. Paul is not convinced that his audience would fully surrender at this point. So he goes on. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He is before all things, and all things in him hold together. Jesus is logically prior to all things. And think about this. Think about this by extension. Anything in your life you might be tempted to put before Jesus, Paul preempts it and says, he is before all things. So before all things, before all creation, Jesus was. In taking that same order, that creative order, and applying it to our lives, we recognize that everything in our lives finds itself being second, third, and fourth behind Jesus. So we establish Jesus first, Jesus, God, his kingdom, his glory, his renown first, and everything else falls subsequent to that. This is the only proper ordering that humanity is able to give. Jesus is first. He is before all things. Now Paul shows us a tremendous display of the power of Jesus. It's not just that he created these things by the power of the agency through him. It's not just that these things are meant to return glory to him. They're created for him. But look what he says here. Look what he says. There at the end of 17, Paul writes and he says, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things cohere. In Jesus, all things bond together. All things stay together. So the pull of gravity, Jesus is upholding this. In the integrity of an atom, Jesus is in that, holding that together. All things are held together by Jesus. All the bonds that that we're not able to get out, I'm not really sure why this works like this, why do electrons work like this, why do protons work like this, why do neutrons work like this. All things are held together by Jesus. The, The oxygen that we breathe is upheld, is held together by Jesus. Do you get this? Do you get the gravity of understanding the significant worth 
and not underestimating the worth of Jesus. This Jesus, the one who upholds all these things, the one that keeps the oxygen working for you, the one that keeps your heart beating for you, this one, this unique one, this inestimably valuable and worthy one, he holds all things together and he surrendered all for humanity. The author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews said this of Jesus in short form. He says in verse, chapter one and verse three, he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus shows the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint of his nature. And look what he says. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This Jesus who we worship. It's not some hapless twit that wandered around and got in a bad set of circumstances. He's not this individual who got lost on a trip and, and, and caught up with the furor of the crowd and then was nailed to a cross, hanging there and said, woe is me, how did this happen? What wrong set of circumstances did I enter in on that set me down this course? This Jesus knows all. This Jesus knew you before you were created. This Jesus. Incredibly powerful, tremendously kind, surrenders his life for you. And he calls you to worship him. And while you're getting there, he upholds the universe, waiting on your surrender. Let us give our hearts to worship this Jesus. Father God, we thank you that you give us an opportunity to worship the Son. Worship him not as we would make him, but to worship him as he is. God, I pray that our worship would go on. That you would reside in our worship, God. That you would empower our worship. That your spirit would be moving in our midst. God, we thank you for the tremendous honor that it is to worship the Son. God, I thank you that you are a God worthy of all honor and all glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can stand with us as we sing. One final breath he gave 
As heaven looked away, the Son of God was made in darkness. A battle in the grave, the war on death was waged. The power of hell this is the good news this broken. The ground began to shake, the stone was rolled away. His perfect love could not be overcome. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected King has rendered you defeated. Forever He is glorified. Forever He is lifted high. Forever He is risen. He is alive. He is alive. The ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. His perfect
If there are words for him, then I don't have them. You see, my brain has not yet reached the point where it can form a thought that could adequately describe the greatness of my God. And my lungs have not yet developed the ability to release a breath with enough agility to breathe out the greatness of his love. And my voice, (laughs) you see, my voice is so inhibited, so restrained by human limits that it's hard to even send a praise up. You see, if there are words for him, then I don't have them. My God, his grace is remarkable. His mercies are innumerable. His strength is impenetrable. He is honorable, accountable, and favorable. He is unsearchable yet knowable. He is indefinable yet approachable. He is indescribable yet personal. He is beyond comprehension, further than imagination, constant through generations. He's the king of every nation. But if there are words for him, then I don't have them. You see, my words are few. And to try to capture the one true God using my vocabulary would never do. But I use words as an expression, an expression of worship to a Savior. A Savior who is both worthy and deserving of my praise. So I use words. My heart extols the Lord, blesses his name forever. He has won my heart and captured my mind, and he has bound them both together. He has defeated me in my rebellion. He has conquered me in my sin. He has welcomed me into the presence, completely invited me in. He has made himself the object of my sight, flooding me with mercies in the morning and drowning me with grace in the night. But if there are words for him, then I don't have them. But what I do have is good news. For my God knew that man-made words would never do. For words are just tools that we use to point to the truth. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the word, living proof. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. He gave nothing this formation. And by his word he sustains in the power of his holy name. For he is before all things and over all things he reigns. Holy is his name. Come on church, let's praise him for his life. The way he persevered in strife. The humble son of God becoming the perfect sacrifice. Church, let's praise him for his death. The way he stood in our place. The way he lovingly endured the grave. That he battled our enemy and on the third day rose in victory. Let's praise him that he rose. Hallelujah, he rose. He is everything that was promised. Let's praise him as the risen king. Lift your voice and sing. For one day he will return and we will finally be united with our Savior for all eternity. So it's not just words that I proclaim. For my word points to the word and the word has a name. Hope has a name. Joy has a name. Peace has a name. Love has a name. And that name is Jesus Christ. So let's praise his name forever. Forever.
God, you are worthy. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship this morning. We thank you. We thank you. Thank you that you came and bore our sin for us. That you died in our place. That you gave us your righteousness. And that because of Because of Jesus, we can stand clean before you today. Thank you that it didn't stop there, Lord, that you gave us new life by raising from the grave. God, you're worthy. Lord, I just ask you just continue to move in this place. I thank you that you're here. I thank you that you help us when we're in need of you. God, that you meet with your people. Lord, I pray that you would save in this place today. I pray that the name of Jesus would be exalted here, that you would continue to work, you would save. God, we thank you for hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When we pick back up Colossians, let me read 18 to 24. Starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul writes and says, He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Catch this. This tremendous shift in 17 that pictures Jesus holding all things together comes near to us in verse 18. Do you see that shift? Read 17. He's holding all things together. And then in 18 he says, he is the head of the body, the church. This isn't a reference to Ridgecrest or or any church you've ever been a part of, but this is a reference to every church everywhere that lifts up high the name of Jesus. This isn't about branding or making many kingdoms. This is about Jesus and his one kingdom, and he is the head. This tremendous display. Jesus and all his power and all his majesty is intimately involved and invested in the ministry of church. You don't like church? You can't not like church and like Jesus because Jesus is the head of the church. He himself holding all things together. Any church that follows Jesus does so with this understanding that he is the head over all things. This tremendous display, this this tremendous promise, this tremendous word. Now look at this. How did Jesus get to be the head of the church and why should the body follow him? We find out that he is the beginning. Well, the beginning of what? The beginning of what? He says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This Jesus, this agent of creation, this one who through him, by him, and returning glory back to him, this Jesus died. And he is the firstborn back from the dead. And in that course of action, 
when the father took back up his life and raised him from the dead, in that course of action, he ushered in a radically new way to have access to God, and he created the church. Jesus founded the church. Jesus installed the church. Jesus instilled the church. Jesus is head over all the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. This Jesus who is very God of very God, who just as he upheld all things, so too he allowed his body to be broken for our transgressions. This Jesus who is the firstborn of all creation, who is rightly over everything, even those things that you think you're in charge of, this Jesus who is is over all these things, he is the one who surrendered his life. He surrendered his life. He allowed himself to be put to death by his creation. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the creation that he knows intimately, that he created, the creation that is meant to glorify him, the creation that is meant to honor his name, this creation, it took him and it murdered him. He surrendered his life over freely to it. And humanity took his life, took his life as Jesus was extending it over to them, and it put him to death. But look at this. This course of action for Jesus. This course of action for Jesus, some are tempted to look at it and say, what an epic failure. He has such promise. He had a tremendous following. He had all of these people willing to die for him. Willing to die for him. But he died in their stead. And in doing so, this is the majesty of our God. That in the hubris of what we might think is not a very good plan, God, this is not well thought out at all, that God would send his one perfect almighty son to die for the transgressions that are in my life and the transgressions that are in your life. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person is separated from God, lest it be for the goodness of God displayed in the Son. His son Jesus, who is over all things, holding them all together, is over the church that he might be first, best, most triumphant. The ESV tells us preeminent. Look what it goes on to say about Jesus. Paul is is captivated with this desire that we must understand exactly how unique, how majestic, how perfect Jesus is. So he goes on, he says, of Jesus, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God reveals himself to humanity through Jesus. God reveals himself to humanity through Jesus. Jesus was this perfect representation, manifestation of God. In Jesus, humanity was afforded the opportunity to see God. In Jesus, humanity was afforded the opportunity to experience the love of God. In Jesus, whose body was broken, humanity has an opportunity, an avenue, a a way of having access to God. And what way is it through? It is through Jesus. This Jesus who created also creates for us access to God. This Jesus who created creates for you and I access to God. And it is in the power of God that we are able to access him. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Look what he says next, because this is vitally important. 
Recognize humanity is separated from God. Humanity is separated from God, but look what he says, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. What did Jesus create? He created all things in heaven and on earth. He created all things invisible and visible. Whether thrones, powers, dominions, or authority, he created all these things, both those things seen and unseen. And this is what he tells us here. That Jesus is reconciling all those things back to himself. All those things that were created through Jesus. All those things that were created by Jesus. All those things that were created and meant to give him glory. Meant to give him honor. Meant to return praise back to him. He is in the business. He is in the process of reconciling those things back to himself. Even as he upholds all things. This is the power. This is the majesty of Jesus. He is reconciling all things back to himself. He's reconciling your wayward heart just as he reconciled mine. He's reconciling humanity, hell bent on its own destruction. He's reconciling all creation that since the fall of humanity has been in utter degradation and disrepair. He is reconciling all things to himself. He is not some weak-willed, Uh, lackluster man who happened to be on this trek in the Middle East and had a lot of followers that bought into his ideology but somehow ended up angering the wrong set of people. No, this is God in the flesh on a mission. And his mission is is reconciliation. His mission is redemption. His mission is restoration. And the ones he is using to issue it to us now is his word and those he has already reconciled. Last week we studied out of 2 Corinthians 5.21. And and, and in this passage, and and what we got in there is this amazing message. That God is about the work of restoration, redemption. He is redeeming humanity. He is calling them into salvation. He is forgiving you of your sins and calling you to receive that. To confess faith in Jesus Christ that he died and was raised again. That he who was sinless took on sin. We read in 2 Corinthians. We read in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Speaking of Jesus. That in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. The one who can change your life. So much more than just a man. In his humanity, he died for you. But in his divinity, in his utter, completely different and uniqueness, he lives for you and lives at the right hand of the Father and still intercedes for you. Look what Paul says here. Paul, finishing up this this section in Colossians, says, through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, Jesus is busy reconciling all things, Back to himself. But look at the process that he does it. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Starts off in verse 15. And it says he's the image of the invisible God. He's the image of this completely unapproachable, distant God. He is the one worthy of our praise. But what we see in verse 20 is this one who is visibly showing us, manifesting to us, God, this one 
This is how he chooses to make peace. He doesn't go and say, look, they've got a lot of sins. They've got a lot of things they've done wrong in their life. Let me just clean slate, wipe this off. It's because God is good, he is perfect, and his perfect justice necessitates, means that he must punish sin. For God to be good, he must punish sin. And so there in 2 Corinthians 5.21, what we read is, He who knew no sin, Jesus in whom there was no sin, there was no malice, there was no shortcoming, this one who is very God of very God, this one who's upholding all things, as Hebrews also goes on to tell us by the word of his power, this one surrendered his life. This one stood and allowed the wrath of the Father to pour out on him for all sins, for humanity forevermore so that you and I might have access to God and so that you and I might have forgiveness for our sins. Jesus extends to you this morning an opportunity for peace with God. Recognize that all humanity is at odds with God because of sin in their life, because of the separation that sin causes. But through the blood of his cross, God beckons you, come. Come and be reconciled to God. Not through the goodness that you're able to conjure. Not through the pure heart that you're able to fake to your in-laws. But through the shed blood of Jesus on Calvary's cross. And through the power of God at work in him when he raised him from the dead. Thereby defeating sin and death forevermore. Let us turn our hearts to worship that God. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning, that we come to you so blessed that you've afforded to us the possibility of forgiveness, God, and I pray that you would be working in the hearts of those that have already surrendered themselves to you to completely convince them of this. Help them to rest in the sure and finished work of your son. God, for those who have yet to surrender their lives to you, Father, this morning we ask that your spirit will be drawing them to yourself. God, that you would be doing a work of salvation in their heart. Your spirit will be convicting them of sin and calling them to the righteousness that is Christ's, which you have afforded them an opportunity to avail themselves of, to make real for them. Father, as we praise you this morning in song, Convince us of these truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.